You're listening to the best of the Martha Zoller Show. You can hear the show live Monday through Friday from 9 to 11 on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN and streaming at accesswdun.com. You can find all things Martha Zoller at marthazoller.com. First up, we wanted to have Representative Andrew Clyde back because they were able on Friday evening to put a pause on this ridiculousness around renaming Lake Sydney Lanier and Buford Dam. But that doesn't mean it's over, and so we wanted to talk to him about it. Representative Clyde, thank you so much for being here. Well, good morning, Martha. It's great to be on with you again. So tell us what happened. Well, um, we had a conversation. Well, initially we had a conversation last Monday, a week ago Monday, a very brief one when the Army Corps came out with their information, their notification that they were planning to rename Lake Sydney Linear and Buford Dam. And um, so I reached out to a number of the community leaders and and folks that, um, uh, you know, would have a sense of what's going on in their local community. And the information i got back from the entire community to a key was this was a terrible idea i mean this was bad it was uh, unthinkable it was ridiculous i mean it was just all negative there was not a solitary person that said you know there was something good about this idea and um so last week was a very busy week for us up in washington but i had the opportunity on friday afternoon about 3 30 or so at 3 45 to call the uh, the Army Corps of Engineers and speak to the local commander and asked him to send up the chain um, <clears throat> what uh, I had um, uh, taken from my district and what my position was. And uh, that was that this was a terrible idea, that they needed to reverse course, that they had exceeded their authority, uh, and that um, as long as I was the uh, ninth district representative, this was not going to happen. I'm going to push back on this in every possible way that we can and uh you know all the way uh, all the way down to um to the, the the level of funding and um and i think they took that and uh he told me that he took that up the chain of command and literally less than an hour later we got that information that there was a pause on this renaming both uh, of lake sydney lanier and buford dam and then i followed up again on monday because what i said is that I will closely monitor the situation, and I plan on doing that. So we called them back on Monday and said, um, <clears throat> all right, you've paused it. Is this a permanent pause? Is this a temporary pause? And the colonel said, well, I'm still waiting to hear from higher headquarters. And so I reemphasized to him uh, my position and the position of the community that this was unacceptable, that this was a really, I think I used the word stupid idea. And um, <clears throat> Well, it really and, uh, showed a <laughs> lack of history. This is all about quote history it shows a lack of history you know Sidney Lanier was the poet laureate of Georgia he was uh yes he was conscripted into the confection the confection the confederate army at a young age he was a private he wasn't in command he wasn't anything else he was a young young man then his real career of writing poems and songs and the things that he became known for happened 
way after 1870s. And so it just shows a real lack of understanding history. It was some little Mm -hmm. person sitting in a room saying, "Okay, look up all these names. And if you find any connection to the Confederacy, then we got to nix them. That's not understanding history. And that's what people were outraged about. I mean, every person I talked to, including I talked to a couple of our Democratic representatives, Senator Ossoff, as well as uh, some of our Democratic congressmen, and they were not in favor of it either. No, I mean, you know, one of the comments I got back from the community was, you know, well, okay, so he was in the Confederate Army. So were the vast majority of our great grandfathers. I mean, so what? All right. That's that's a fact of history. You know, this guy was an amazing poet, wrote the song of the Chattahoochee, which was an amazing, uh, amazing piece of work. And and for that, they want to rename and cause the community millions upon millions upon millions of dollars, uh, you know, of cost and 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 confusion. And just it's a stupid idea. And um, that was conveyed very strongly to the Corps of Engineers. And um, and they well, will you. truly have a hornet's nest if, if they go forward with it. Well, thank you for doing that. Now, I wanted to ask you, of course, since we talked, of course, we had this bank failure, Silicon Valley Bank uh, in California. You had the president come out, I think, yesterday or Sunday saying they were going to guarantee the depositors, not the investors, but the depositors. Um, and, of course, you know, the people are concerned, obviously. I think that really this bank was the fault, uh, you know, of the Biden administration in that it's it's escalating increases of interest rates so fast after they've been low for so long is going to really put a bunch of institutions in danger. As far as I could tell, Silicon Valley Bank did not have bad practices. They got caught up in these escalated interest rates. I don't want to say there's no fault on their side, and we're going to have some people later in the program that know a lot more about it than I do, but... Um, are you concerned about other banks? Well, you had Signature Bank also that right. um, heavily invested. Signature Bank of New York was heavily invested, um, you know, in big tech. And when you have, when you are heavily invested in something like that, and and you, you think about big tech, their value is really virtual. I mean, it's not really hard assets. Like someone is a you know manufacturing facility that makes product. They have inventory. They have buildings. You know they have um, uh, raw materials, etc. Uh, you know big tech doesn't really have that. Um, they have what they have is virtual. It's on our computers, and when the electricity goes out, you know that goes out. So um, uh, it's it's hard to really grasp what their actual value is, and so it's kind of a uh, you know a, a, a virtual value. That, that they put on it, that people put on, you know, big tech. And when banks heavily invest in that, you know, I, I wouldn't say that uh, that Silicon Valley didn't, you know, have any responsibility. I think they certainly did. So did Signature Bank in this. But when you heavily invest in in long-term securities that are small on interest rate, small on return, and then the interest rate, you know, continues to climb rapidly at, you know, as a result of the Biden administration's economic policies, then those those assets that you have invested in that have, you know, small interest rates aren't valuable anymore and, and people don't want to buy them. And as a result, they were caught in this. And truly, Martha, you're right. The fact that, um, that the Biden administration's rapidly escalating interest rates, uh, was, 
was a significant factor in causing these banks to get in trouble. So let me ask you one more question, because I, you know, I get concerned because obviously you and I have talked and we've traveled the Ninth District a lot in all of our times working on different things. And um, a lot of people don't want don't like the Fed. They want to get rid of the Fed, because what it seems to me from the outside is that the Federal Reserve does things really based on a formula, maybe. I don't know what they actually use. But what they don't take into consideration is the impact on average families. Because it might all be well and good to say, oh, we need to slow inflation down, and how we do it is we raise interest rates. But that doesn't impact people, you know, that are the wealthy, that that it seems that the Biden administration hates the most. That doesn't impact them that much. In fact, in some ways, it helps them. Who it really impacts is a working family, a person that's a firefighter and a teacher that are that are married, and then they're trying to raise a family. When interest rates are up, when when inflation rates are up and not going down fast enough, that's who gets hurt. And I don't think the Fed is in tune with that. Well, I think the Fed tries to predict the future and therefore create economic policies that will, you know, mitigate uh, uh, d- disasters in the future, financial disasters. And, and I don't think they've done as good a job as they certainly could have. And so looking at what the Fed does and how it does it and its authority to do it, I certainly think is, a, is um, something that Congress, uh, you know, bears a responsibility to look into. I agree. With you I agree. And and we've got to be more clear about what it means and what their goals and, and responsibilities are. I know it's job creation and keeping interest rates low. That's two of the big things that they do. But clearly they're not doing that right now. And I don't think raising interest rates to where an average family can't afford to buy a house now uh, because it's gone from 3% to 7% in a very short period of time mm-hmm. is not the way to do it. Right. Uh, I think it's much better for the market itself to, um, you know, we're, we're a free market economy. That's what we're all about. And I think that's probably better for the, uh, for the American economy that the market really decide where that is. And, um, so Andrew but, Clyde, thank you for your hard work on Lake Lanier. Thank you. <laughs> thank you for your hard work every day. Thank you, Martha. It's an honor to serve the Ninth District. It's where North Georgia comes to talk. It's the Martha Zoller Show on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN. Kara Moriarty is here with us right now. She's from Alaska Oil and Gas. And we had her on last month to talk about a project uh, in Alaska that it appears the Biden administration is going to approve now. Kara, welcome back to the program. Well, good morning. Thank you very much. So tell us what the status is right now. So, yes, we got a positive record of decision yesterday morning uh, approving the Willow project. Um, It was not the original project that ConocoPhillips had originally permitted or tried to get permitted, but um, the original project was five drill sites, the record of decision Uh, is down to three, but it's still an economically viable project. And so now we wait for ConocoPhillips to make a final investment decision. But this could mean um, up to 2,500 new jobs in Alaska, up to 180,000 barrels a day of new uh, production from Alaska. And so it certainly was welcome news. 
Um, not without, you know, uh, some further restrictions, however, that was announced the day before on Sunday. Um, but we will deal with that rulemaking when the time comes. But for now, we're celebrating the positive news. And I mean, it does seem to me this idea, I know we have a problem sometimes in this country if we take whole industries and we say the oil industry is this or big pharma is this or whatever you know and I do think that there's probably not enough nuance in a lot of things that we say related to this and I think that it's the idea that that Alaskan oil and gas or any oil and gas company wants to destroy the property or where they live. They live there. They work there. They destroy it. They don't have anywhere to live and work. Um, there's there's just this unreasonable attitude about it. And bottom line is there is nobody, uh, or I shouldn't say nobody, the United States of America and our companies that are within the United States of America do a better job at doing these kinds of things than anybody. Is it perfect? No, nothing is. But we are cleaner and more efficient than almost any other companies in the world. Oh, absolutely. In fact, the Biden administration's own Bureau of Land Management says that in the recommendation that the administration approved yesterday. And they say that if Willow is not developed, that the oil will come from other areas that do not have the same environmental standards. And the reality is um, the BLM also estimates that the total emissions from Willow in 2030, so 10 years from now, will be less than 1% of all U.S. emissions. So the reality is if Willow had not been approved, it would not stop oil development. It would just force more development potentially from countries that don't have the same environmental standards or, frankly, human rights practices that we have here in America. So, uh, yeah, it's a, it's, you know, the truth hurts sometimes for those that want to see no more oil development, but the world continues to demand uh, oil. The forecasts show that in 2030 we're still going to need 70 million barrels a day of oil, so why not produce more here at home? So, again, we're we're looking forward to uh, hopefully Conoco achieving their final investment decision now. Um, we know the lawsuits are coming. That's nothing new in Alaska, um, <laughs> but we'll, we we you know we stand ready to celebrate this good news for an American project. You know, it is it is really funny because what I have learned, you know, in about in looking at this uh, over the years is that is that, you know, oil and gas. First of all, I'm old enough to remember when they said we only had two percent left and we were going to be out of it. You would think that if if really these environmentalists and others wanted us to switch to biodiesel or not biodiesel, but renewables, that they would want us to use as much oil as we could because then it would run out. But we keep finding more, don't we? I mean, it seems to me that this idea that all the oil in the world, maybe it was first formed by the dinosaurs. I don't know. I'm just, I'm being facetious here. But what I'm saying is, is that, you know, it's part of the mix. It is nobody burns it cleaner than we do. 
we ought to be open and embracing how we do this instead of putting up barriers everywhere we go. Well, I mean, exactly. I mean, we are in a transition, but even the president himself has had to admit that we need more oil, that we cannot survive as a country, both uh, economically and strategically and from a national security standpoint, without producing more oil. I mean, an interesting factoid that I uh, discovered in the last uh, six weeks or so, especially as the intensity ramped up on the other side, is that in the three years prior to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, we imported 630 million barrels of oil from Russia alone into this country in that three-year period. Well, why wouldn't we want to be trying to find more oil here uh, instead of relying on a foreign country like that? So, you know, you know, it's unfortunate for the Ukrainian people that uh, it took the Russian invasion for the spotlight to be highlighted on a country like that um, and the energy that they were exporting. Now it, it is unlocking other areas and making Americans realize, hey, we, we should be producing more of that at home. And we ought that's to be, exactly what we want to do. We ought to be energy independent. I think we were for a brief time in the last administration. But we ought to be energy independent. We ought to be the people that exports it to the rest of the world as much as we can. Uh, but it, it just seems like that is not such a crazy idea, and it shouldn't be partisan to be energy independent. To me, that's kind no. of like, you know, food, shelter, energy independence. You ought to be able to do all that for yourself. And then beyond right. that, you might trade around. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it is uh, remarkable that, uh, you know, when you energy policy should is should not be partisan. Um because we all need energy and we all need clean burning fuel. Um, and my friends in the mining industry need to be successful if we do want to eventually transition to a completely renewable environment because we need metals uh, and mining for all of the products that have renewables, solar panels, uh, uh, wind uh, energy requires critical minerals to be successful. So, you know, uh, again, it's it's something that we can celebrate. It's it, the the one thing that this project did was unite Alaskans in a way that I haven't seen. Well, I haven't seen in my twenty plus years of public policy here. Um, you know, our entire congressional delegation, which is now a bipartisan delegation. Alaska Native organizations, unions, even AFL-CIO, which is obviously a huge conglomerate of public and private sector unions, all came together to say, this project is necessary for Alaska. And if it had not been developed, ConocoPhillips was not going to be the loser. They would have just taken their billions and invested somewhere else. Um, You know, Alaska certainly had a lot to lose. And, and frankly, it's, it's really an um, important message to send that we do want to develop it here at home. So, you, know, um, um, you, you mentioned AFL-CIO, and I know your focus is Alaska, uh, but, 
you know, the first thing the Biden administration did was suspend the Keystone Pipeline. And and yeah. to me, that was 20,000 union jobs. I believe it was the Pipe Fitters Union was the name of the union. Uh, it's, it's just to me, I do not understand putting people out of work for your agenda. I just don't understand that. And then make these trite statements like, oh, they can learn how to do something else. Well, as if... This is not skilled work. I am really tired of people talking about working class people as if it's not skilled work. And I'm a college graduate. My kids are college graduates. I believe in education and all of that. But the one thing I've learned as I've grown up is that, you know, we have a real shortage of skilled laborers, of skilled people that know how to do things. It's not just some work anybody can do, whether it's a pipe fitter on the Keystone Pipeline or it's an AFL-CIO worker at uh, the Willow Project. You know, we've got to be more respectful of the level of expertise that folks have that work in these projects. Oh, absolutely. We have a huge workforce uh, workforce um, issue uh, across, you know, we're, we're, we're no different than the rest of the country. I mean, um, and it's getting harder to recruit uh, people into our industry, whether it's plumbers and pipefitters, whether it's operating engineers, whether it's laborers, whether it's teamsters, whether it's truck drivers, whether it's engineers, uh, you know, with a four-year, five-year engineering petroleum degree. Um, and, you know, and again, it's it's the the narrative that you know, there isn't going to be an industry 20 to 30 years from now, which just is frankly not true. Um, the, the, all of the forecasts show that we need oil and gas for the next 30 to 40 years. Um, and we need consistency in policy. Uh, we need a full-scale, positive environment that these are good-paying jobs, that uh, skilled labor trade unions, construction workers, that these are the types of jobs that will provide a good living wage uh, to raise families and to have homes and to be able to recreate. Well, and, and I would argue, you know, I would argue even beyond that, because we recently, the last week in December, had an unbelievable cold snap for this part of the country. And because of the way Georgia Power managed resources, they had to use every single kind of energy at their disposal, even the stuff that wasn't very efficient, to be able to keep people's power on through this cold snap. Uh, And, you know, and they were able to do it. And they were able to do it because they had lots of different resources at their fingertips, right? And that's Mm -hmm. what we've got to stop picking winners. Okay, we need to use everything at our disposal to keep us independent for food, shelter, and energy. Everything at our at our you know at our disposal. So anyway, Kara Moriarty, yeah. if people want to know more about Alaska um, uh, oil, let, how can they find out? Uh, they can go to our website at aoga.org or follow us on uh, our Twitter and Instagram or Facebook pages. You can just search Alaska Oil and Gas. Um, and Martha, I think you mentioned you've been here before. We look forward to having you come back. Uh, we're I- ready. I look forward to it. I really do. Thank you so much, Kara, for being with us today. Yeah, thank you so much. Putting the talk in news talk. It's the Martha Zoller Show on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN. Someday, someday, someday in my life, 
maybe. People will just advocate for what the right thing is fiscally and economically and forget about the politics. You know, uh, Dr. Samuel Gregg is here with me right now from the AIER, which is the American Institute for Economic Research. And, um, you know, numbers, Dr. Gregg, ought to be one of those things that aren't political. You know, numbers are what they are. Economic policy is what it is. And it shouldn't have a social construct. It shouldn't have any of that other kind of stuff involved. What it should be is what is the best investment? What is the best work around for the numbers? What? How do the numbers work? It shouldn't be about what society is doing. Am I crazy? Uh, not at all. <clears throat> one of the things about economics and one of the things about good finance is that it provides us with accurate information expressed through things like prices and market signals, which we can then use as a basis for formulating, say, economic policy on the basis of things that everyone basically agrees about. So, for example, if we say, okay, this is what the inflation number is, then, and we all agree that that is, in fact, the real inflation number, then that gives us a basis to start thinking seriously about monetary policy and fiscal policy. Or if it comes to something like uh, bank failure, for example, we need to agree that a bank has indeed failed, that there is some sort of objective standard by which we can measure that. Because if we don't have those standards, if we don't have those reference points, then it's more or less impossible to decide what is the right course of action. And unfortunately today, maybe it's not so new, but unfortunately today, I think a lot of people in public life, they will try and massage numbers. They will try and tell you that the numbers aren't actually what they really are. And that leads to a type of corruption of public discourse about serious matters like fiscal and monetary policy. So we're seeing a lot of that right now because you have the president going out almost every day saying there's the best economy ever. Um, You know, wages are up. um, Inflation's going down. Well, yeah, maybe it's down from 9%, but it's still pretty high compared to the last 40 years. So that's what you're talking about, right? Where people can, you know, what's the old saying? You can make statistics look any way you want them to. That's what we're seeing right now. Yes, and this is a... This is something that I think most, uh, most, unfortunately, most politicians do right, because sometimes the numbers that are presented, whether it's inflation numbers, unemployment numbers, or the labor participation rate, or any of these type of objective criteria, in terms of just numbers that we've arrived at and decided are good indicators of what's going on in the economy, uh, many political leaders will basically try and tell you that X is in fact Y or A is in fact B, or that this unemployment rate is not as bad or it's even worse than you actually think it is. And the problem is that it leads to a type of public discourse about very serious topics that affect the lives of millions of people that become just another football, another political football that goes back and forth, back and forth, uh, to the the point whereby citizens don't really know who to believe anymore. Well, and I have this kind of mantra I talk about, which is leadership. And good leadership is not necessarily you going out and doing everything yourself. Good leadership is 
you being able to communicate in a way that that you and I can feel like we can go out and take a risk and try to build something. And that's what Ronald Reagan had. That's what, to some degree, President Obama had. Um, they had that ability to make you feel good about yourself. And you went out and took a risk. And you made something grow. You made something out of nothing. And that's what we have to get people to do. But I have children in that 30 to 40-year-old range. And they're doing fine. They're doing fine. But especially my younger children, they are feeling like they're never going to get out of this hole of high inflation and high interest rates. And I think there are factions within our government and within our economic policy that really say they care about that kind of person. But they really don't. Well, we see this in things like, for example, the administration's desire to basically engage in complete forgiveness of student loans, right? Because when you think about student loans, they're no different from any other loan, right? People decide, they go into the marketplace and they decide, okay, I think it's worth getting that degree Uh, I don't have the capital to pay for it right now, but I'm going to take a loan out and I'm going to pay it back uh, with interest over a period of time. It's a problem when the government comes along and says, well, actually, all bets are off. We're simply going to change the situation whereby if you can present a, a particular case, then we'll effectively take over the loan for you and forgive the loan. And that's that's problematic because it upsets all the feedback mechanisms concerning reward and risk taking risk, right? So if you take a risk and it pays off, it works well. The problem we have right now in so much of the economy is that we essentially allow people to profit, which is great, but when losses come along, we end up socializing them. I mean, we did this back in 2008, and I fear we're going to do it in this this current banking crisis right now. But more generally, I think, to your wider point, I think it's true to say that if you look at how people think they are faring in the economy today, I think it's fair to say there's a great deal of uncertainty. There's a great deal of anxiety. Now, uncertainty and risk are part of life. We all know that. There's no such thing as a perfectly uh, a perfectly aligned world. There's no such thing in which we can know everything that's going to happen in the future. But there are degrees of risk and degrees of uncertainty. And I think it's true to say that particularly among people who are, let's say, between the ages of 20 and, and 40, they are very uncertain about what the economic future is likely to be. For many of them, for example, this is the first time they've ever experienced in their life what inflation feels and looks like. And when you have inflation on the scale that we have today, that makes it harder to plan forward what your economic future will be, either as an individual or as a family. So, yes, I think the degree of uncertainty, despite the fact that there are some good economic indicators out there, there's also a lot of uncertainty because there are a lot of bad indicators out there that are telling us that, We have some very serious things to be worried about. You know, and a better proposal on student loans, quite frankly, would have been, okay, we're probably charging you too much interest because, 
you know, with, adjust the interest rate down or something like that, but you still pay back the loan. Because if you take out a loan, and, and really only 20% of the people go to college, 22% of the people go to college, it's not fair to ask everybody else to help them pay back their loans. That's just not, it, it's not fair. And it's also not fair to the people like me and my husband who sacrificed and saved and paid our children's college so we so they wouldn't have student loans. Um, and, and then someone goes on and, and forgives it. It's just, it's not a fair equation any way around. But what I wanted to ask no. you about... I wanted yeah. to ask you about the Silicon Valley Bank. So can you just uh-huh. give us a quick description of what happened and where we are today? Okay, well, a quick description of uh, what's happened with uh, the um, SVB. is basically SVB committed, I guess, what you'd call one of the most elementary errors in banking. They borrowed money in the short term and invested in the long term. The problem is interest rates went up in the meantime because of what the Federal Reserve is doing, rightly in my view, to try and get inflation out of the economy or at least get it down to about 2%. Because when interest rates went up, the assets held by SVB lost their value and they put the institution in a situation whereby assets no longer matched liabilities. So, now, of course, all banks, borrow short and lend long. But properly managed banks limit the duration mismatch between liabilities and assets so that the capital position isn't gravely compromised by rising long-term interest rates. And that is exactly what has happened to SVB. There's no evidence of any um, uh, malpractice. There's no evidence of uh, any breaking of the law yet. We will find out more as time goes on. But that's the basic situation that we're faced with. And, of course, the big concern is that the effects of SVP basically going bankrupt and going into receivership, the concern is that this will magnify throughout the rest of the financial sector because all these banks are all in different ways connected to each other. Many of them also follow the same types of patterns of behavior. So when you see one bank go under for a particular type of reason, you start looking at others and saying, do we see similar patterns manifesting themselves in other banks? So I don't see a major financial crisis on the horizon. I do not see a major banking crisis on the horizon. But I do think this is going to hurt the tech sector because Silicon Valley Bank was, as the name suggests, highly focused on the tech sector. It's also going to affect regional banks as well because SVB is a regional bank and a lot of regional banks behave in the same way when it comes to the types of, um, the types of things and the way that borrow, banks borrow and lend. So I don't anticipate huge problem going through the economy, but I do see that there will be particular sectors of the economy that will be affected and particular types of banks that will be affected. So I would assume every year a certain number of banks um, fail, right? I mean, yeah, maybe not every absolutely. year, but, but over a 10-year period, you have a certain number of banks fail. Nobody is anticipating this is going to be like 2008, correct? That this is just going to be a, a blip? Is that what you're thinking or what is it going to be? Well, uh, it is true that banks fail all the time. Right. So every year, and I mean that every year, there are banks that fail. I guess the the one that marks this one out is that it's the large, well, it's one of the largest banking failures in American history. So the size of this particular bank's failure is something that 
is concerning people. And people are also looking at the way in which this is going to affect the tech sector because SVB was a big lender to uh, young techies, to entrepreneurs who are starting up new businesses in Silicon Valley, etc. And now some of those people are going to find themselves uh, facing some significant difficulties. The tech sector is one of the most productive parts of the American economy. So that, I think, those two factors, the size of the failure plus the fact that it's so connected to the tech sector, are what are giving people some concern. There's also the fact that any bank failure of this size is going to raise questions about whether we will face effectively a run on banks, whereby people try to withdraw their assets from banks and banks find themselves in a position where they really can't uh, meet the demands that are being made on them. But you know, we don't know how this is going to play out in, in the immediate, let alone long-term future. So at the moment, I would say, I don't think we're facing a type of catastrophe or anything like that, but we do have reasons to be concerned about particular types of banks and particular parts of the economy. Dr. Stephen Samuel Gregg, thank you so much for being with us today. He's from AIER, American Institute of Economic Research. Lots more we could talk about, and we'll have you back on again to do that. Thank you so much. Thanks, Martha. Great to be with you. It's local radio, and that's why you're listening. It's the Martha Zoller Show on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN. It is the Martha Zoller Show, and joining me right now is Mara Davis, who is a longtime radio maven, but now is really kind of like the queen of rating podcasts, which is pretty exciting to me. But also, she does all kinds of other things, and one of the things she got to do was interview William Shatner, who is one of those iconic stars who who has remade himself so many times. I loved him in the original Star Trek. I thought he was the cutest thing ever. And he, of course, did T.J. Hooker, and he's been in a lot of other things, and he's willing to make fun of himself. And he's 91 now, and he's got a, finally a documentary about his life coming out. Mara Davis, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, my gosh, Martha. Yes, it's so good to be with you, too. And it was such a surreal experience. Last week at Atlanta Symphony Hall, they did a screening of Wrath of Khan 2 with Ricardo Montalban. And so the audience had a screening, and then I did the Q&A with Shatner, and he was just lovely. I mean, you know, he's 91. He was so with it, Martha. Like, this is not, he wasn't a 91. He felt like a 71 really. And if you've watched recently, like I rewatched Rathacon too, it's, it's worth a rewatch. It's a great movie. Well, and he was one of those guys that, that whether it was Star Trek, which obviously he had worked a lot before Star, Star Trek, but it was what catapulted in him into the fame that he's continued since then. And he was in all the movies, right? I mean, he, not all of them, but that first round of movies, he was in the Star Trek movies. And so... so it, the first round, yes. And that was a, an interesting part of the conversation because it was, I think it's what I, what I find so inspiring about him. And look, he definitely, when you have a career that long, there's certainly like unsavory things and funny things. And, you know, he's had to reinvent his career so many times. And he, the clip that you played about the documentary is really fascinating. So he was going to South by Southwest to debut that documentary, which he told me 
He hadn't even seen it. And the company that made it, the people that made that documentary, it's an interesting business model where they crowdsourced it. So people who donated to make that money also have a stake in the profits of that movie. So it is really fascinating to see how Shatner is continuing to innovate. I mean, and then, like, he just got back. He went into space. Yes. Yes, absolutely. So what do you think... Is that the key to his longevity that he just never thinks he's old? I think it's a fascinating study of what we're seeing in pop culture right now. I think with some of these artists, if you continue to work, it keeps you young. Look at Jamie Lee Curtis, for example. She is having this incredible career moment in her 60s. Not that she's ever gone anywhere. And I think... The public is more accepting of this, but in Shatner's case, I mean, he just never stopped from Priceline commercials to Comedy Central roasts to cameos and stuff. And, you know, he's a philanthropic guy, and he's really invested in climate change. And that was a big thing that he talked about as far as when he did go into space and how, like, invested he is and, you know the environment and all of that. It was just such an inspiring talk, but let me give you some backstage dirt. Martha, I had dinner with him. I don't want to seem braggy, but like this, it was so surreal. I had dinner with him and his team, which was just like two guys. He's so low maintenance. I dealt with a lot of high profile people. So we were having dinner that was brought in and um, he was obsessed with the Murdoch murder case. <laughs> he could not stop talking about that. And, you know, I'm obsessed with that case. And I'm sure your audience is obsessed with it. Of course. I mean, I don't think anybody can look at it and not think, wow, this is something. So Shatner had just finished watching the documentary on Netflix. And, you know, I know there are several of them. I've watched them all, of course. And he was just like, so we were having the best time talking about that. Um, but the audience in Atlanta was just bonkers for Shatner. I mean, just bonkers. And he looks fantastic. He's really, really, I mean, he's so, so good does he think? Does he think that Murdaugh hired a, a hitman? He thinks, you know, it's funny because all of us in the South have been following this a lot longer than the rest of the country, I think, and the world. But no, he thinks that she Murdoch did it all. He did yeah. it all, Martha. Yeah. So on. my husband, my husband thinks he had a hitman. That there's that there was someone that, there that helped him. That's never come out. But that's what my husband thinks after watching all the stuff. Uh, it, you know, it's possible. It's possible. But it's just such a fascinating study. Um, you know, and that's a conversation for another time. But I just thought it was so funny how Chatner was just so invested in this and you know uh, meanwhile the crazy part was so i had interviewed him and it was a late night i was done by like eleven thirty, and then he met like 300 people in a meet and greet here i am like you know i don't know where near 91 and i'm ready for bed and this guy just has unlimited energy it's it's really something to behold and you know a big part of the conversation was about how star trek has endured and how progressive it was and how it was like nothing anyone had ever seen before at that time. I mean, I remember growing up with my mom who never missed an episode. Meanwhile, he was very irritated by that question because it made him feel old because growing up, I'm like, well, you are 91. 
<laughs> well, it's funny. Well, it's funny too because if I recall, was it three seasons, five seasons? It wasn't on like Gunsmoke for twenty five years, right? Exactly. It, was, it wasn't on that long, but it it caught on afterwards, and it and it really is a testament to if you think about some of these really classic shows that it did take them a while to for people to get into them, and today they don't have that luxury, right? Um, we had, if you remember all in the family was a big flop in the beginning and it took over a year to really build that audience. And then it was on for what, 10 years, something like that. And so it had spinoffs and all kinds of things. So it is, it is very interesting because Star Trek was one of those things that I watched as a kid, but, and I never understood because I was in a different phase in my life, all the exciting, you know, when the movies came out and all that stuff. But my kids watched those movies and loved them. Did he, did he, I was, he has been made fun of and he's campy and, but he plays into that, doesn't he? He doesn't mind it if he's a, he's the butt of the joke. Not at all. And that was really a big part of it that was so funny. Like he could really laugh at himself and made a joke. Like one of the people in the audience asked the question because the people from the audience were asking questions and I had cards that were submitted. And one of the questions was boxers are brief. And then he took a long pause and then just said, depends. (laughs) And it was really, really funny. And, you know, he just, you know, he obviously really, really recognizes that, like, and, you know, then, of course, like, George Takei, Sulu, they've had, like, they're always going at it with each other, and he was making jokes about that, and I think that is a case for why you have longevity if you can uh, not take yourself so seriously. Um, But remember, after Star Trek, apparently, and we didn't talk about this, but in my research, that he was, like, not rich after that yes so and you know what i don't i don't i'm sure he's well off and doing fine martha but like he does need to work and he is investing in his kids and his grandkids by doing all this work but clearly him doing these screenings and talking to the fans maybe he doesn't have to do it but i think he well, I, I, obviously he loves making the money, but I think he just loves genuinely talking to the fans. And Rapacon's so funny because with rewatching it, I'm like, oh my god! Like they were so ahead of its time. Everybody's FaceTiming and on Zoom. Yeah, movie, I love it. Know? I loved it. I loved Ricardo Montalban too. You know, I and, love and, what know, they've done to my wheelchair. car. Yeah, he was he was in a wheelchair when they because he had. Problems. It's some sort of something was wrong with him where he couldn't walk, and so it's really interesting in that movie because he's so like built and like muscular. People thought it was prosthetics, but he had done all this work on his upper body. It's really, really fascinating. All the sidebars, and then of course the other breath of Khan. You know, Spock dies, and then the next one is the return of Spock because people were pissed. That's yeah. Yeah. Like, Sometimes you know. they have to listen to the the, the folks. Um, so if people want to follow you and your podcast recommendations and all the things you do, how can they do that? Find me on Instagram, Mara Davis 2000, Mara Davis on Twitter. And yes, if you ever need a podcast recommendation, always hit me up. True crime is um, my specialty. So my one recommendation in your audience should be listening to Bone Valley, the best true crime podcast that's come out recently. Mara Davis, thank you so much for being with me today. We'll talk soon.
All right. Thanks, Melissa. Take care.